Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Today we bring you the story of Donald Trump, a Canadian skyscraper and one of its financiers, a Russian-Canadian billionaire. Our investigative reporter Tom Burgess talks to Esther Bintliff about the links he uncovered between a shadowy world of post-Soviet money and the future president of the United States. Tom, you wrote that the tale of the Trump Toronto illuminates what it means for the US to have a leader whose business model has long depended on exchanging his family name for money with a murky past, no questions asked. Let's just take listeners through the story. Maybe we could start with you just describing a bit about the Trump Toronto building. It's now been renamed the Adelaide Hotel. Can you just tell us a bit about how it came about, how much did it cost to build, any of that information? The history of the building itself, this skyscraper in the financial district of Toronto, it starts in 2001, a developer called Lieb Waldman and Donald Trump and Ritz-Carlton, the hotel company. They start to put together a plan for this building. It's going to be one of the tallest buildings in Canada. And the first thing that goes wrong, or one of the first things that goes wrong, it turns out that Waldman is a fraudster and a fugitive. He's wanted in the U.S., He's fled to Canada and started developing this building. Uh, So that comes out, and that obviously puts a bit of a dampener on the project. Ritz can't pull out, but Donald Trump stays in. And around 2003, Alex Schneider gets involved. Alex Schneider is a Russian-born, St. Petersburg-born businessman who's grown up the son of migrants to Toronto from relatively humble background. But he started to make his way in business through his father-in-law. He teams up with Trump, and from 2003, this plan takes more and more shape to build a great big skyscraper with Donald Trump's name at the top of it. And in 2007, Schneider, Trump, and other people involved in the projects, they take these big gold shovels, they stick them in the ground, lots of people take photos of them, and they say, here we go, off we go, this is going to be a wonderful new building for Canada. And over the next five years, it gets built. But what is far more fascinating, even than all the delightful fixtures and fittings, is where the money came from for that project. Yes, so this Alex Schneider character is really kind of crucial to the story that you tell. And it's him and his connections that are so important in terms of understanding this flow of money. Can you tell us a bit about his relationship with Boris Burstein? He is the father-in-law of Schneider and he's a really key player. Yeah, so by the time Schneider is standing with Donald Trump in 2007, breaking ground on this skyscraper, he's a billionaire. How has he become a billionaire? Given that a few years before he was stacking shelves in his parents' deli in Toronto. It seems that one of, if not the most crucial thing that happened to Schneider in his business career was that he met and would eventually marry the daughter of Boris Burstein. So Burstein is an absolutely intriguing character. He's born in Soviet Lithuania. He also emigrated to Toronto. But he had this really rare privilege of being able to move as a Western-based businessman from the West to the Soviet Union and back again, seemingly completely freely. And he um, he didn't give us an interview, he declined, but he's given one or two interviews back in the 90s in which he talks expansively about how well-connected he was in the Soviet Union. He said, I knew Brezhnev and so on. And he had this, he operated out of a very swanky premises in Lenin Hills in Moscow. 
And he's doing business at the time, the late years, the, the dying years of the Soviet Union, at the time when capitalism and communism are smashing up against each other and creating one of the forces that have shaped the last 30 years of power and politics and money in the world, this fusion of the late Soviet power structures with global capitalism. Burstyn makes money out of his connections, really out of his ability to do business in the republics that emerge from the Soviet empire. And he brings on his protégé, Alex Schneider, his son-in-law. Specifically, he gives him a start, according to Schneider's business partner. Burstyn gives Schneider a start in Ukraine. And it's from Ukraine, really, that Schneider starts to make his big money and become this kind of global businessman who will eventually team up with Trump. Okay, is this where the steel mill comes in? This is where the steel mill comes in. And if you'd just like to tell me what his name is. <laughs> the steel mill. Zaporistal. Precisely. The Zaporistal steel mill. So picture, if you will, an enormous triumph of Soviet industrial engineering, pipes and steam valves and huge conveyor belts. The Zaporistal steel mill is, uh, I believe, the fifth biggest steel mill in Ukraine. Ukraine being one of the great global hubs of steel making. And it's in the city of Zaporizhia. It's about 150 miles from the Russian border. So it's pretty close now, actually, to the area where Russian-backed separatists have established control in eastern Ukraine. Back in the 90s, Zaporizhstal is one of the prize assets that's up for grabs as this transition from communism to some form of capitalism happens. And there's a privatisation battle in which Schneider and his partners end up with control of Zaporizhstal huge thing, employs 50,000 people, throws out steel, throws out money. Schneider has been given his start in Ukraine by his father-in-law, Burstein. Burstein kind of recedes from the scene and Schneider emerges as a serious businessman in the former Soviet Union. He establishes control of Zaporostal through the privatisation. His rivals say he had political connections and the government favoured his bid, his rivals would say unfairly. And he and his partners appear to have paid about $70 million for Zaporistal. Within a few years, it's worth about 10 times that much. And that's what catapults him into the super rich, really. It also catapults him into this world, and this is what's so crucial to understand about this story, where personal political ambitions, geopolitics and Western business all become interlinked. Because Ukrainian industrial assets are exactly the kind of things through which this struggle between Moscow and Ukraine plays out. This struggle that's happened really for decades, but especially sharply lately, as Ukraine has been brought into the Western fold more and more, these assets are the kind of things that Moscow wants to control. Okay, so how do we get from the steel mill in Ukraine to the Russian money that we then see kind of flowing through in this mysterious way to Schneider? This is where following the money is crucial. So this is where you start to see the connections and the money flows that make us think, what does it mean that someone connected to these kind of money flows is now in the White House? So step by step, what happens? Schneider's developing the Trump Toronto. This is in the late noughties. The building is behind schedule and more money is going to go into it. Around this time, Schneider and his business partner agreed to sell Zaporistan. They agreed to sell their stake in this enormous steel mill. They have one bid from a Ukrainian oligarch, but they favour a different one, which will give them a little bit more money. What that bid also involves, and this is, I think, the main revelation in our story, this bid also involves Schneider signing off on a payment 
by his company, a secret payment. It'll be routed through some of the secret corners of the financial system. It'll be disguised. And it will end up with introducers, as he calls them, representing Russian buyers. The Russian buyers take the form of offshore companies, but ultimately, we've established in our story, the the people that Schneider is doing business with is the Kremlin. This secret $100 million is going to a man who represents those interests. Igor Bakai is the name of the man, according to Schneider's partner. Bakai has a colourful history, but he's, at the time, 2010, he's a fixer for business deals in Moscow. So just go through that again for a second. You've got Schneider agreeing to pay $100 million to a fixer for the Kremlin's interests. In return, Schneider's company will sell its steel mill for $850 million. So just over a tenth of the value of that deal will go in secret to this fixer representing the Kremlin's interests. A few weeks later... After that $850 million has flowed into Midland, which is Schneider's company, Schneider and his partner will agree that $40 million more million will go into the Trump Toronto. Over the years that follow that, Trump will take out at least $4 million. So you follow that flow and you start to have serious questions about how Trump is making his money and the checks he is doing or should be doing or where it comes from. OK, now... There is this other character, Edouard Schifrin, who you talk about in the piece. What role did he play, particularly when it comes to the steel mill and the sale of the mill? Yeah, yeah. So Schneider is the developer of the Trump Toronto, and his partner is Schifrin. Schneider and Schifrin, they are Midland Group with assets, things like Zaporizh Stahl, the steel mill, but also things like the Red October steel plant in what was Stalingrad and now Volgograd. Schifrin's not involved at all in the development of the Trump Toronto, as far as we know. He's the Moscow end of things for Midland. Schneider's living in Toronto, largely, and Schifrin's living in Moscow, largely. What we know from the documents we've got in this story is that it was Schifrin, according to his own account in a witness statement in an arbitration case from many years later with Schneider. What we know from Schifrin's account is that it was he who was approached by representatives of these Russian buyers, these Kremlin-backed buyers. And Schifrin says that they said to him, to paraphrase, you better do the deal we want you to do. You better sell, as Igor Bakai has told you to do, to these Russian buyers, not to the Ukrainian buyer. The Russian state-owned bank will put up the money for this. But if you don't do what we're telling you to do, your assets will be at risk. And Schneider says that Schifrin told him that the Russians saw this as a strategically important purpose. Remember, this is just a few years before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Everything is framed here in the political tension between Russia and Ukraine. And the head of that Russian state-owned bank was... Uh, At the time, was a Russian politician called Vladimir Putin. The state-owned bank is Venesh Ekonom Bank, or VEB. And you talk to people who understand it, they'll describe it as the financial arm of the Kremlin. So, step back from it again. What do we have? Trump's business partner, the man who's putting up a lot of the money to develop the Trump Toronto, from which Trump will take millions in licensing fees for his brand and for a hotel management contract. The man is bringing in the money for that. He is doing a deal in Ukraine to sell a steel mill for Russian state money. That must have been reported already, but we've confirmed it. Crucially, he's doing it in a deal that involves a secret $100 million payment to a fixer representing the Kremlin's interests. We have corporate documents that seem to indicate that Basically, all of the money for the deal comes from the Russian state. And that through various offshore financial instruments, VEB Bank, a.k.a. the Russian state, 
gets control of the steel mill itself and that the buyers, the offshore companies, are essentially vehicles for the Russian state to gain control of that strategic asset. And the 100 million, what do we think happened to that 100 million? Obviously, you talk about Igor Bakai, he's the sort of middleman, and it's officially a commission payment. But as you say in the piece, it's a very, very large commission. It's a very large And this, you're absolutely right, this is the crucial question at the heart of this thing. It is a crime under Canadian law and under law in the US and the UK for that matter and lots of other countries to pay or offer anything of value to an official of a foreign government to gain a business advantage. Now, did any of that $100 million that was sent in secret to Moscow in order to facilitate a business deal, did any of that end up with foreign officials, specifically officials in the Kremlin? We have two reasons to raise questions about this and to wonder whether it did. I mentioned the arbitration documents. In 2016, Schifrin and Schneider fall out and have an arbitration fight with each other. We got hold of some of the documents in that case. And there are two things that are said in them that make you wonder about where the $100 million ended up. One is what Schneider says. Schneider claims that Schifrin actually diverted all this money that he, Schneider, thought was going to Bakai, or at least going to introducers of the deal. Schneider says Schifrin diverted this money to himself in large part or in its entirety. So Schneider says that a Midland manager in Moscow at this time, 2010, was told by Schifrin that Schifrin needed money to pay off officials in the Kremlin. Schifrin denies that, but what Schifrin says in his own witness statement, one of his witness statements in this case, the one that we've seen, Schifrin says, I arranged for the $100 million to be paid to Bakai, and then he says, but I don't know whether Bakai was the only recipient there may have been additional recipients for this money who Bakai was representing. Now, given that ultimately the backers of this deal are the Russian state, the people who are putting up the money, the people who are interceding on its behalf with Schifrin, that leaves open the question of whether some of the people Bakai was representing were Russian officials and whether any money ended up with them. Obviously, we asked Schifrin and Schneider to tell us more about what they think happened to the $100 million. And they decided not to answer our questions. So in terms of the Trump Toronto, in the piece you mentioned that even in times of booms, Trump branded properties have a habit of sometimes going bust. So who did get money from the Trump Toronto? In the end, it did go bankrupt. Is that right? It did. It gets opened in 2012, belatedly. And then four years later, in 2016, it's insolvent. So Raiffeisen Bank loses money. That's the Austrian bank that put up money for it. The debt is bought out and the building is bought out by a property investor. It looks like Schneider lost some money. Trump conceivably lost some money. But his management contract was bought out by the new owners. And his financial disclosures show that from 2014 to 2017, so the period immediately before and after the insolvency, he made more than $4 million from this. We know that from the financial disclosures he makes as a candidate president. And that's $4 million for what? That's $4 million for being Donald Trump. He has a model that he's developed over the last 15, 20 years. Basically, since previous bankruptcy, stopped him being able to borrow from mainstream banks, largely, of not building buildings with his own money, necessarily, but letting other people build the buildings, licensing his name, taking a management contract to run the condominiums and hotels that are built at the end of it, and crucially, as former associates say, not asking questions about where the money came from. And would you say that this kind of arrangement is typical of 
other real estate ventures that the Trump organization is famous for, if you look across his career? High-end US real estate is widely identified as one of the prime vehicles for global money laundering. So the Treasury recently did a study, the US Treasury. They reckon about a third of high-end transactions, from what they've been able to work out so far, are suspicious. The larger significance of this is what does it mean now he's the president? And the people we described these money flows to, the experts, they told us two things. One is, if Trump had knowledge of a criminal transaction or a questionable transaction through his real estate dealings, several of which involve dubious or secretive money flows. If he knew something, and a foreign intelligence agency knew that he knew something, he and his family would be susceptible to undue influence. One expert on this, Tom Keating at the Royal United Services Institute, he calls that the worst fear of an intelligence agency, to discover that a political leader had that kind of vulnerability. And the second thing is more subtle, but I think equally important. And that's a question of alignment of interests in today's world. So for the first time, there's a US president whose past business history is enmeshed with this post-Soviet sphere of kleptocrats and authoritarians and money flows where it's very hard to tell whether money is being used commercially or politically, is one way of putting it. Now, what does it mean to have a person like that in the White House? And you think about the money that sustained his career and the money that will go on sustaining the Trump organisation, which, lest we forget, he still owns and his children still run. When you start to see the decisions he makes in his relationship with Putin, in his approach to Ukraine, in his approach to NATO, looking at it through this prism, some of the experts we spoke to told us, this prism of the secretive money flows of the past 10 or 20 years gives you a whole new way of understanding what Trump in power means. That was our investigative reporter Tom Burgess talking to Esther Bintliffe, and you can find a link to Tom's report in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.